Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. I'm so excited today to have Mrs. Sarah Pachter, who's an unbelievable speaker, having lectured throughout the U.S. and Israel, and recently the author of the amazing book, Small Choices, Big Changes. And today we go into how do you accomplish some of the big visions you have in your life, and how do you develop into the person that you want to become? No further ado, Sarah Pack. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. I was curious how you got started writing and speaking. That is such a good question. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited and humbled and honored. Um, so the whole thing with speaking and writing, I really started speaking first. Uh, even now, after writing a book, I don't really consider myself a writer uh, because it's been such a short amount of time that I started writing. But it all started with speaking. And what happened was, after spending some time in Israel and doing some learning, I came back to Atlanta, where I'm from, and there was really nothing going on for the Shavuos program. There was just nothing for women. And I said, you know what, let me make a shear in my house. I invited people, I made some sushi, I didn't think that many people would come and the place was packed and people stayed till three in the morning and we were learning Torah. And after giving that first, I guess, speech, so to speak, I felt like this fire was just lit up inside of me and I said, oh my gosh, I gotta do this, I gotta teach Torah. Um, and I started volunteering. I went to schools and shuls and all over. Anyone that would ask me, I just was like, sure, why not? Eventually, when I was in Stern College in New York City, uh, I was asked by the Jewish Enrichment Center to give a class. And it was very last minute. You know, they called me up the day of and they asked if I would teach that night. And it's, the backstory to it is that my friend was tutoring there and their teacher, Rebetzin Leah Cohen, canceled very last minute. And so they needed somebody quick. So she says, why don't you try Sarah Pachter? She's great, you know, try her out. And they said, how old is she? She goes, uh, she's 20. They're like, no, we're not having a 20 year old speak for our program. But nonetheless, uh, they were kind of desperate. So they, they went ahead with it and it went really well. And I think they were kind of surprised. We were all kind of surprised, but they ended up inviting me to lead trips to Israel and speaking every week. And it just kind of catapulted into something that we never expected it to. Um, but from that, that's really where my speaking engagements took off. Um, and as things developed, we moved to LA. I, I, I remember I would teach for UCLA Jam program, Aish, Link, et cetera. Um, eventually, I started having a lot more children. I now have four kids. I just had a baby. And I realized, thank you. And uh, I realized that it wasn't going to work all this speaking all the time. I had to really be more selective. And that is when I said, you know what, let me see if I can start transitioning into writing in order to make things more accessible and, you know, get the Torah out there in a more broad manner. And that's really how it happened. Um, I said to myself, you know what, even though I've always wanted to write a book, it's never going to happen. You know, it's one of those dreams that just, it doesn't really happen ever. So I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to write one article. I'm not going to write a book. I just want to write an article. And I was persistent with just getting one article out there in a Jewish publication. 
And it wasn't, you know, am I going to do it? It was how am I going to get one article published? I'm going to make this happen. And even though I did have rejection initially, um, I kept trying and eventually it happened. And once I saw, oh my gosh, I can get an article published, I could do it again. And you know what, let me try this publication and let me try that. And, and eventually I was asked to write a column. And after writing that column for about a year or so, I turned around and said, hey, I got enough material here for a book. And that's really the premise of Small Choices, Big Changes. I didn't write a book, I wrote an article. And so it was something small that really led to something much bigger. There's a ton to unpack there. Yeah, one, I know. <laughs> one of the things that you, you speak about and, um, is this idea of finding yourself. And just from the very beginning about being able to have the confidence to say, I'm going to make a, you know, a Torah class in my home. Where did that come from? And what was your process like finding yourself? And what takeaways can you say for the average person that doesn't really know what their, their purpose is, so to speak? How can they go about determining that? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, where does the confidence come from? Um, so I think, I think there's a lot of answers to that. Uh, I think one of the concepts is sometimes you got to jump before you're actually confident enough to jump. Um, and I'll tell you what, I mean, you got to just jump into things, get yourself in a position where you can't really turn back and you just got to keep moving forward. Um, one really just quick example, when I was teaching for the JEC, you know, I was this 20 year old girl and everyone was 27, 33, you know, they were successful professionals and my hand used to shake when I would start to open up. It was this really cool venue. It looked like a cross between a coffee shop and a bar. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this place is way too cool and, and whatever for me. But my hand would, would kind of shake on the door as I would open it. But I, I just walked in there with a smile on my face. I shook their hands heartily and I said, you know what, let's just fake it till you make it. And, and that's how it worked. And eventually my hand stopped shaking. So I think I kept putting myself in situations where I just had to. Um, you know, when I was asked to give weekly lectures, you have to understand, I only had like three lectures under my belt. You know what I'm saying? And, and each lecture took I don't know, two months to make. So I didn't actually have enough material to give a lecture every week, but I jumped into it and I said yes before I was ready. And when I was asked to do the column, oh my gosh, it used to take me two months to write one article. And here I was being asked to crank them out super quick. And I said, I'm not ready to do this. I don't have the skill to do this, but I'm gonna do it anyways. I'm gonna just jump into it. You have to lean into the fear and lean into um, I guess what they're asking you to do, you just got to do it, you know, can't think about it. You just got to, got to move. And if I would ask you, because I think that it is very helpful for other people to hear, you know, we see someone like yourself that clearly has that confidence that they are on the path that God put them on. And everyone's on the path that God put them on, but a lot of us lack the confidence to say, this is, I know that I'm on the right path. What is the path that you're on? If you would take your mission or your, how you see fitting in the Jewish world in this day and age to which audience, like how do you visualize that mission for yourself? And was that something that 
you fell into, that you developed, that you knew you wanted? And is that something that you see changing or do you see just evolving to better serve, so to speak, this niche that you're working in? Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, it's funny. You, and you're not the first person to say that to me. Like, you are clearly doing your mission or, you know, you're on this path. I don't actually view it that way. Um, you're kidding. How, what do you, yeah, <laughs> like, you I, mean? you know why? I don't, I don't look at it as this broad picture that I have this goal or not that I don't have goals, but it's more that I'm just taking each day at a time and whatever is brought in front of me, I'm making a choice. Am I going to give this lecture tomorrow night or can I not do it? Am I going to, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's really more a moment to moment thing. And I guess what's motivating me and what I, what the message that I want to give to the world is, you know, just keep trying, just try to keep, be the best person that you can possibly be. And, and I guess that's what I want to give over. It's more like if I continually work on myself little by little by little, that will then brought into the world. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to be the best me possible. And maybe that will inspire someone else, but maybe not. I don't know. I don't well, know if that's even what the answer you're looking for. No, it's fantastic. Here's the, here's the thing. I think that there is such a pressure to, to figure out, at least I, I see, and it's, it's different for maybe the Jewish world and not the Jewish world, but there's such yeah. a pressure to figure out what's the authentic message and how do I figure out who's supposed to hear it? And so the approach of I'm working on myself and I'm trying to give based on where I am right now, I think that's uh, a, another lesson when it comes to the concept of authenticity. And I know that that's something else that you speak about. And so maybe if we could delve into that for a second, wow. you know, when you're trying to be someone for some someone, which in the reality in all of our lives, you know, we all work, we're all, you know, parents or, right. or wives, husbands, siblings, you know, we all have these uh, responsibilities we have to show up for. So how do you balance being what others need with authenticity and being what you need yourself? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think, well, part of the answer is that, and it's funny that you mentioned that, the very things that I speak about and teach about are my struggles. And that's why I think it comes off as authentic and it really is authentic because I'm giving people a piece of myself. You know, when I write this book, it's not just pen to paper. I'm writing about the things that excite me, the things that I am literally struggling with. And I'm willing to share those vulnerabilities because if I think even if one person is changed from reading a story, a real story that really happened to me or something real that I'm struggling with, then it's worth it. And you know what? Even if that one person is me, like who cares? Okay. So it's one person is changed and one person is the world. So I, I, I want to... Sorry, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I yeah. wanted just to, to develop that for yeah. two moments because I think that this need for authenticity and this desire for, for us to be authentic um, and to be truly heard, how do you balance that practically speaking or, or philosophically speaking with the need or, you know, either to be safe you know, and not to overshare, not to look too needy. Because yeah. I think as we go through problems, we are kind of a hot mess. And then it's always yeah. easy to kind of say, you know what I'm saying? So when I'm like sitting there trembling, you know, eating a cupcake in, in private so that nobody notices that, you know, the guy that's always talking about health and stuff like that is uh, <laughs> 
have all the same eating problems that everyone else does. You know, it's always easier to say, oh, I lost all this weight and now look at me. The flip side being that what really helps people is it's like, no, I'm actually also, this is how I actually put down the cookie today or I yeah. ate the cookie today and I didn't beat myself up. So how do you balance that? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I think that you do always have to, I guess you can call it edit what you say. You know, for example, part of me is like, oh, I'm so excited for this interview. Like, this is going to be great. And then part of me is like, oh, I hope he's going to edit it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that same concept of vulnerability. We want to be open. We want to share parts of ourselves. That's what people want in me. It's like, we all want vulnerability in others, but we don't want to dish it out. You know what I'm saying? So, but I, I do think as someone who is becoming more pu more public, I definitely have, I guess you could call it Gadarim or boundaries in terms of what I allow to expose of myself and my family. Um, first of all, I never give over information that someone else, I've always asked permission in terms of other people's stories, including my own, within my own family. Um, and I think if, if I'm going to be vulnerable, it has to be something that I have worked through already. And I feel like I'm now on the other side. I'm not going to give you something that I am, you know, a hot mess, as you call it, you know, in the moment, if that's not what's what I'm going to be speaking about, because I don't think that's fair to the listener to hear that extreme level of vulnerability. But you bet your bottom dollar, there are sometimes articles that I wrote that I then read in the paper. <laughs> and I'm like, my face is red. I'm like, did I write that about myself? No, no, we need to. And I almost wish I could like erase it all and nobody look at this. And, but you can't, you just, you have to be real. So I think sometimes there are mistakes in the process and I maybe do share too much or too little or whatever, but that's part of being human, you know? Um, but I think really people want that vulnerability and I think vulnerability is not exposing everything that's oversharing and oversharing is almost like blinding someone who's, let's say you're driving in a car and you've got like your high beams on when someone is driving opposite you and they, ha they have high beams in their face, oh, they turn away. It's painful. They can't look at it. You don't want to overshare to the point that you're causing someone to turn away. So you do have to be selective with what you're willing to share because it's not actually vulnerability to overshare. That's something else. You see what I'm saying? 100%. Talk to me a little bit about happiness. And as a mother of four, including a newborn and a wife and, you know, having a book and a speaking career and, and you know, clearly having all kinds of things that are pulling at you in all different directions, what does happiness mean to you? And how have you sought to cultivate happiness in your own life? Okay, excellent, excellent. Um, I think first of all, happiness is extremely elusive to pretty much everybody. It's an, it's an extremely elusive goal that we all are trying so hard to get. And, and it's funny because I find that pretty much everybody across the board, it's universal. I mean, we know it's a universal topic, but this is what everybody wants. Everyone, left and right, everywhere you turn, this is what people are really asking about when they speak with me individually or in groups. Um, I think that, first of all, having purpose and meaning in your life and finding purpose and meaning throughout the mundanities of your life, if that makes sense, um, is something super important. But I think a practical way to get happy, which by far for me, this is the number one secret that just constantly works is a gratitude journal. And I know, I know that sounds so like we've heard it a hundred times, but there's a difference between hearing about it and thinking, yeah, that's a great idea. I should do that 
versus I do this every single day. And that is what I do. Um, I actually have a gratitude journal with one of my best friends in Texas. We have a Google doc that we every single morning or afternoon write in. I have one with my husband as well. And I can tell you that there is definitely a difference if, you know, a weekend passes and the kids are all at home and I don't have a chance to write in it. There is definitely a difference in myself, um, in my own positivity on the days that I write in it and the days when I don't. Um, to give you like a, just a quick personal thing, when my third child was born, she was in the NICU and I didn't know if she was going to live or die. Uh, so every day I wasn't allowed to touch her. I wasn't allowed to hold her. I wasn't allowed to feed her, but I would go and visit and sit by the hospital every day. And there were days when I was praying with fervor and there were days where I was too numb to speak. I mean, it was just a very challenging time period. It was a very dark time, so to speak. And people will ask, often ask me, you know, how do you get through the dark times? So that's one example of a very dark time, but you better believe even though there were times where I was too numb to speak, too numb to feel, so to speak, I was writing in that gratitude log. And I remember, I remember specifically one night writing an entry and writing, gosh, I feel like I have nothing to be thankful for, but uh, here, let me try something. And I said, uh, thank you, God, for letting me, for enabling me to hold this pen and write this sentence. I mean, I was in a, a very, very sad place. And, but what's funny is now I can look back, it was four years ago that she was in the NICU, and I, I realized, hey, there were glimmers of light, even in that darkness, because it's a log, it's a journal that I can look back on, and you kind of stamp it with, with eternity, so to speak, when you write it down. Um, I think verbalizing it is great, too. You know, at dinner time, my family goes over the most grateful part of the day or the happiest part of the day, but I think writing it down puts it at a different level. Um, and it, gratitude increases joy, we don't even realize what, what it does for us inside. Something that's so interesting is the idea of doing a gratitude journal with somebody else. Oh, yeah. and, and so can you just get a little bit more granular in terms of, are you writing the same thing for your friend and your husband? Are the only things that go you know, in those journals are things that are relative to the two of you? I'm grateful for my husband for X. I'm grateful for my friend for Y. Yeah. Or is it, how, does, how do you structure that and why do you do it that way? Okay, amazing. So first of all, it creates a tremendous amount of accountability. You know, I just had my baby, as I mentioned, and there was a, about a week or so that passed and I am like diehard. I write in it every day and I'm maybe a little a drop more, uh, not into it, but more consistent about it than my friend. So she sends me this text saying, Sarah, you have not missed a day in the past two years. What is going on? And I was like, right, right. Sorry, got to get back on track. So it definitely creates accountability. Um, it becomes part of a routine. I do differentiate what I share with my friend versus what I'm writing with my husband. Obviously with your husband, you can be more personal, more specific. I also do a lot of thanking my husband in our gratitude log versus thinking general concepts with my friend. Um, and so a twofold, uh, thanking my husband every day, writing something specific that I'm grateful for, uh, helps our relationship. And it also helps my gratitude towards him as well as my gratitude towards Hashem. So it's almost like a threefold, uh, jam packed whammy when I do it with my husband versus with my friend, it's more, uh, general everyday, less, uh, vulnerable things, for example. 
talk to me a bit, little bit about how you see God playing a role in your life and in your business. To what extent do you try to, and I'm sorry to be so personal, but yeah. you know, to what extent do you try to bring him in? How do you do that? How do you relate to God during the difficult times? How do you how do you how do you see yourself? And, and the reason, the premise of this question that I'm that I'm really fascinated about is, you know, the world of self help and self development is so big nowadays. There's so many different things we can do, but I think kind of our differentiating factor is this relationship that that we have with God. I mean, you know, if you try to bring in Jewish sources and you know de development as a as a practice for the Jewish people is kind of as old as we are. Um, so how does that look to you in terms of your spirituality and how it plays into your day-to-day -day life? Sure. Okay. So I definitely do my best to bring God into, I guess you could call it my career or speaking and learning. Uh, you should know before every lecture that I give, I dive in or I pray to Hashem that he enable me to be his kli, his vessel. I'm just a vessel. I am just a body and Hashem can either fill me up inside with his Torah to give over in an inspiring way or not. It's completely up to him. So in essence, I'm really a very small part of the, of the equation and it's really HaKadosh Baruch Hu who is determining the success of me or anyone really. So whenever there is challenge or politics, let's call it, or any sort of anything, I always say no one's more powerful than Hashem, and whatever Hashem wants is what is meant to be. And that happens every time before every lecture and pretty much every session that I have with anyone. It's just Hashem, please enable me to have the right words, enable me to be your Kli. Um, but in terms of, you know, the divine intervention and the Hashgacha practice, again, it kind of ties into the gratitude log because what you start to see is wow, God's involved in the nitty gritty of my life. And it's not like he created me, you know, 32 years ago and then was like, sayonara, like, I'll see you later, honey. No, he's continuously creating us each day, every time we breathe in and breathe out. Now you're going to ask, oh my gosh, does this girl really like live her life thinking about this 24 seven? No, no, certainly not. But I'm trying I try to bring God into my life as much as possible when I'm davening, when I'm dealing with the kids. You know, the kids are off the wall and what am I thinking to myself? You know, I'm not always perfect, but I try to be thinking, Hashem, help me stay calm in this moment. Like literally bringing God into the little challenges and the big challenges and as much as I can because nothing can be done alone. You know, we need him. As a little bit of a preamble for the next question, um, I I greatly appreciate the value of having men learn from men when it comes to successful marriages and women learn from women. And I know that there's a lot of, I guess what you call it, occupational hazards of one knowing what the other's supposed to be doing and then you know focusing on that as opposed to um, working on themselves. That being said, um, if you could give some advice, relationship advice, and you can make it gender specific or you don't have to, and I think for a lot of men, it's very helpful to hear kind of what women would want their husband, their ideal husband, their boyfriend, whatever you want to be, show up more as, or for women, you know, how they could create on their end a better relationship or to facilitate happiness in their, in their relationships. What, what could you say? I realize that, you know, I, the reality of the, of the, of the world is that both genders do listen in on these kind of conversations. And so we have to sometimes be more public than we'd like to. So with that being said, what would you say to 
a person looking to upgrade the quality of their relationship? Fantastic question. Wow. Okay. Um, I think you can kind of sum things up in one sentence when it comes to relationships. I know that's uh, kind of, I, I don't know what the word is, but uh, it's, it's a little much for me to say that, but you know, here's what I'll say. I believe that men need respect like oxygen and women need love. And so I think it is the man's job to try to understand how to show their wife love in the way that they hear it. And women need to... In the way the women hear it, you're saying, to specify. Yeah. yeah. And also, and of course, women need respect. And of course, men need love. But I think the, that, that if you're going to be gender specific, and I, I hate to do that because I think there's always exceptions and there's always, it's very, very general. But overall, I think men desire respect the way women desire love. And so... A woman can, what you can do in your relationship is without even any cooperation from the other person, there is so much you can do on your own to make the relationship better than it might be at the moment. And as a woman, you can look and say, what are some things that I can do to respect my spouse? What are some things I can say to him to show him respect, gratitude, all of that? And as a man, the man without the woman's, you know, help in the situation can look and say, what would my wife want right now? What can I do for her that will show her affection and love? Um, and there are specific things that I think also letting go of control. And, you know, it, it says that the relationship that you have with your spouse is really a microcosm of your relationship to God. So the more you understand how little control you have in your life and how much Hashem is in control, the more you're also willing to give up control in your relationship because control and intimacy are opposing forces. The more I try to control you, the more intimacy I will lose. Um, and the, the less I try to control you, the more we can have a beautiful, intimate relationship. Um, so I think that's where it kind of falls into. Let, let, let's slow down because there was actually. Okay, sorry, a there's a lot there. there. It's, no, it's great. It's great. I, I want to. It's so funny. There's a um, there's a, a therapist, a Jewish a Jewish therapist, uh, which is I guess you know kind of part for the course in a lot of cases. But there's a therapist named Esther Perel that wrote a book oh. about. Uh, she wrote two best-selling books about this concept, which I look at from a Jewish perspective, I say, yeah, that's, that's, that's basic, but you know, it really resonated with, with people about this exact thing. And she talks about how, you know, the domesticity of having a partner that you spend all of your time with that, you know, we live now for a really long time and, you know, for whatever, you know, reasons, biological, historically that, you know, just people live shorter and they were only for a small period of time. And this idea of having intimacy and and all that goes along with the intimate you know interest and 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 kind of ongoing passion all that kind of stuff that they're diametrically opposed so she uses her language but you said this idea about control and intimacy so if you could just kind of develop that i know it's probably about a four or five hour topic but yeah. how do you tell me a little bit more about that Okay, so it's funny that you mentioned Esther Perel. What was her last name Perel? Esther Perel? I don't know. She oh, speaks okay. like 35 different languages, so I yeah, think yeah, we yeah, probably yeah. get it wrong yeah. no matter what we say. I thought she was French, but she's actually Belgian. You should just, Belgian, you should just know. But either way, um, I, I've, I did not hear that concept from her. I actually heard about this concept from a woman named Laura Doyle. She writes an excellent book called First Kill All the Marriage Therapists. I thought it was 
phenomenal. Um, and I give the tools that she shares to some of my students. I use them myself and it's, it's really quite amazing. So she's the one that really lays it out just like that in the sense that the more you try to control, the less intimacy you will have. And that goes with our relationship to God and that goes to our relationship with friends, and it goes for our relationship with our spouses, because you cannot control anyone but yourself. And that's really, I guess it ties into the message of my book. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm not trying to change anyone else. And one of my biggest things is when I learn with students, I do not have an agenda. I meet them where they're at, and I give them information. What they wanna do with that is up to them completely. Um, so the more we try to control, the less of a relationship you have. Do you see what I'm saying? You can't have a relationship with someone that you are trying to control. That's not a relationship. You see what I mean? So if we accept who our spouses are, who our friends are, who our parents are, who, whoever are in our, in our lives and accept them for they are and let them be who they want to be, you will have in turn a real relationship. They will be real with you. You will be more real with them. And I think that's the seesaw. You got to give up control in order to have a relationship. Piggybacking on giving up control or yeah. why we try to take control in the first place, though, is we're trying to avoid, I guess, hurt or disappointment. Absolutely. And one of the big challenges there is if you look at a person and, you know, I think that everyone has that 2020 hindsight, so, so to speak, and you look back at decisions that you made that were wrong, and you look back at things that have happened to the past and pain, and, you know, obviously, a lot of people, whenever they kind of suffer in their life and they know they have a relationship with God, they're like, why did you make me suffer and all that kind of stuff? So how do you, I guess, help a person or encourage someone to relinquish control, but also how to manage frustration or disappointment with how things went in the past and not have you try to use that to kind of more strongly exert control? Well, I'm not sure I really even understand the question. I, I think I understand. I, I'm... I think when people are going through painful times and they say to Hashem, which I have done as well, I'm not saying other people, I'm saying myself here, you know, God, why are you doing this to me? This is, this is awful. Or I'm so angry with you right now, you know? Um, I think you're right that we try to then find areas of control to control when we feel out of control. But I think the bottom line is what you learn in that situation is that you don't have control. Like there, you you you're not in control. Only Hashem is in control, and so and and, and so just to, to, you never had because so you're saying you never you never really had control. Yes. So you're kicking yourself over why did I say that kind of thing. It's sort of like well, God wanted me to say that, and so I shouldn't be upset that I did the you know like it, it passed. Exactly, exactly. You know, I think also trying to control things comes from a place of fear, um, but the more trust you have in Hashem the more that fear is eliminated and then you don't have, you no longer have the desire to control. Now you're talking to someone who I am not, you know, not that I'm a control freak, but I definitely like to feel in control. We all like to, that's part of human nature. Um, so I think as we grow older, as we develop spiritually, we realize all those times I thought I was in control, I really wasn't, it was, you know, a higher power. So, but that's a great question. Okay, I, I, I know that we could go on forever. I want to be very respectful of your time. So I have potential, two, potentially three further questions, depending on, on, what, on what you have availability for. Question number one, and again, not to give another preamble, would be that 
I am very excited with the opportunity to bring um, powerful women to speak for the, the, for the, for the Jewish people. I, I love the idea of sort of changing the dialogue from being a very, you know, sort of, th that everyone just, you know, the, all the guys are out there and rabbis that are, you know, men and speaking, stuff like that. And I would love to get women's opinions, leaders like yourself who speak to women. What lesson do you think that modern Jewish women um, or, or piece of advice or insight that you would want to share with the modern Jewish woman, so to speak? Oh, that is amazing, amazing. So I guess, I guess the message I want to impart to women and men as well, I mean, it's really anybody, is that you can achieve anything that you want one choice at a time. You can really become who you want to become and, and do and accomplish the things that you want to accomplish if you're willing to uh, sacrifice for it. That's the first thing. You got to figure out your priorities. But once you have figured out your priorities and you know what it is you want to sacrifice for, you can achieve anything if you break it down small enough. As I said before with my book, who's writing a book? Who has time to write what, 300 pages worth of material? Not me, I don't, not this Sarah Pactor. But what do I do? You break it down, one week at a time, one page at a time, 10 minutes a day, whatever it is. So whatever your goal is, be it financial, spiritual, success, relationships, anything, you can achieve it. You know, I just, I just saw this video literally just on H.com about a, a Hasidish Orthodox woman with like, I don't know, eight, 10 kids. And she's a judge. You know what I mean? Like yeah. who does that? Well, anyone can do it if you break it down small enough and you figure out what your priorities are. So that's the message I want to give to women and to everyone. It's not just a woman thing. Uh, it's a people thing. I love that. And speaking of people, you actually set it up perfectly from your experience, which again, you would say you're young, but you've actually a, a veteran of whatever, over a decade of working in Jewish outreach as someone that really has their finger on the pulse of where Jews are today. What do you feel like is the greatest challenge or opportunity that's facing the Jewish people? And what do you think possible solutions are? I'm not sure offhand what the greatest problem is, um, but one of them that I see a lot, and I guess it's because I work a lot with singles, is the dating scene. It's people are not getting married. Um, and the expectations of women today in the dating world is very, very challenging to navigate. Um, and that's like a whole nother topic. I'm not even sure I want to delve into the challenges there just in terms of uh, all sorts of things that it will lead to in terms of conversation, but I think it's it's a big challenge. The dating world, people if people don't get married, the you know, we're not having kids. And then, you know, that extends to another problem. One other issue that I see is um the challenge of Shabbos and technology and how it plays into that. Um I think even within the Orthodox world, you have people that aren't really fully keeping Shabbos and we're so hooked up to technology all the time, whether you're Orthodox or not, where is that connection that we used to have with people? Um, the face-to-face, -face, the it's like we're always trying to connect to someone, but it's they're in another room or they're in another city or look at us right now, you know, we're in two different cities. And it leaves you feeling a little empty inside when you're desperately trying to connect, but it's just not doing the job because it's through technology. 
Um, so I think that's something that leaves people feeling a little hollow. They're looking for something more. We're, we're hardwired to connect as humans. And when you don't have at least Shabbos to turn it off, you know, um, it can be really, it can really take over. A final question. Besides yeah. your book, uh, what other books do you feel are absolutely fundamental for people to read, Jewish people to read, the people that you work with to read? What, would, what are like the top three books that you recommend? Jewish oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, I'm an avid reader. I am constantly, constantly reading. Um, that's where a lot of my research comes in. You know, if, if I have a topic, I'm spending six months just reading up on that topic, whether it be secular, Judaic sources, gosh, you know, anywhere, any, anyone I talk to, I'll, I'll listen to interviewing, etc. But some of the, the best books that I have read, um, one of them is by Janice Kaplan. It's a secular book and it's called Gratitude Diaries. Amazing book. You read that and you feel like she's your best friend. Like you just can't put it down. Um, another one is by Robinson Heller. It's called Let's Face It. If you're, especially if you're a beginner, I think that's a great one to start with. I don't know if you've read it. Um, fantastic. Uh, and then, as I said before, if you're in a marriage or if you're in any sort of relationship, anything by Laura Doyle is going to be phenomenal. Um, that first kill the marriage uh, therapist is just life altering, life changing. And I, I think the reason why all three of these books resonate with me, obviously one of them is from a Torah lecture, Robinson Sephora Heller, but the other ones resonate with me because the ideas are Torah. Yes, it's packaged in a secular book and it's for the public eye. And oh, by the way, anything by Robinson Young Rice, huge, huge fan of hers as well. I should definitely mention her. Um, but yeah, those other books are packaged in secular packaging, but it's Torah. You know, you read it and you're like, wow, that is exactly what the Torah tells us to do. Everyone will listen because it's in a secular book and it's been researched at Harvard, but it's Torah. It's thousands of years old. We've, we know this as Jews. So yeah. Amazing. Okay. The book is called Small Choices, Big Changes. Sarah, thank you so much. How do people find more about you if they would want to work with you or hear you or bring you out to their community? Sure. So my, the website is sarahpactorspeaks.com and my book is on Amazon. You can email me at uh, sarahpactorspeaks at gmail.com. And I'm so grateful to you for your time. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.